The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and their tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. 
For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Marianne. Well, have you ever come across a road work zone where there's nobody working? (laughs) Have you ever seen that? Have you struck that? There's been a few times over the years where I've been uh, driving along the M4, uh, signs say road work ahead, and the speed limit drops to 80, then it drops to 40, and of course you comply, and you crawl along for a few kilometres. There's no high vis. There's no witch's hats, no evidence of work anywhere, not even a pothole. And then the road work ends. And it all feels a little silly, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure the road was working in some way or another. But was it really road work? Now, I wonder if this is how we feel sometimes about God being at work. Because how can we know when he is at work? Sometimes we might think that success Tells us, tells us if something is successful, if I pray for something and it happens, then God is at work. And if something looks like a failure, if something doesn't come about, well then, maybe he hasn't. Now, applying our methods of working out whether God is at work, they, they don't go very well in Acts. Um, I'm so glad the apostles didn't rely on uh, these kinds of methods like we might. Um, There are ups and downs that the apostles have gone through and will go through that I don't really, uh, I I wonder what we would do if we came across the same things, if we went through the same experiences. I think that there are times in Acts when when I would have been deeply discouraged, uh, when I would have been tempted to throw in the towel, to go back to the quiet life of fishing on Lake Galilee. But what we see in this passage is that it's very clear that God is at work and where God is at work. In this passage, we see something that's been unfolding through, through the gospel and, and through right through to this point in Acts. And it's the reality that the central place where God is at work has changed. God's work in the world is now centred around and springs from the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the good news about the risen Jesus. That's the place where God is working in Acts. Um, God's work through gospel proclamation is seen in three ways in this particular passage. Uh, First, it's seen as the apostles are suppressed by the religious rulers. Um, Then it's seen as the apostles are recommissioned by God. And then finally, God's work is seen as their ministry is, is affirmed by God. And so first, we we see that the central place where God is at work um, has changed as the apostles are suppressed by the religious rulers. This isn't the first time this kind of thing has happened in Acts. Um, So far in Acts, we've seen uh, Jesus ascend to heaven 
Uh, we've seen the Holy Spirit come. We've seen the risen and ascended Jesus working through the apostles in preaching, in doing miracles. And we've seen God demonstrating that he is with them, that he's with these apostles, and that he's for them as they've faced threats of opposition, opposition against them personally, opposition as, against them as gospel proclaimers, as well as opposition against the rest of the new believers, the church, which is what we saw last week. And now in chapter 5, we read this response from the religious authorities in Jerusalem. This is their response to the ministry that we've been seeing. Uh, look at me, verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Um, now, the previous few verses, 12 to 16, uh, they tell us the reason for this response, the reason for this particular jealousy. Um, the apostles have been doing miracles. Uh, the believers who have heard and responded to the gospel message are united. They're meeting together. Uh, they're highly regarded by the people and they're increasing in number. And so it's no wonder that the religious authorities are jealous. And it's this jealousy that leads the high priest and his associates to do what they do in verse 18. Um, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. That's one way to try and shut this down. But it only takes one verse for them and for us to see that God is working with the apostles and not with the religious rulers. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. So this is how God deals with these attempts to, to oppress the apostles, to, to suppress their gospel message. He arranges for an angel to open the doors and bring them out. Uh, God overturns this opposition to, to the ongoing witness of the risen Jesus, just as he has previously in Acts. It's miraculous. But, Jesus, but God continues to act this way. And when the angel opens the doors of the jail, what we see is this biblical comedy sketch play out. I wonder if you noticed as Marianne was reading. Uh, the religious leaders, they put the apostles in jail. God opens the jail. The religious council gets everyone together for this big trial and then they can't bring anybody in to stand in front of them because they can't find anybody in the prison. The guards are standing there at the doors of the jail guarding the prisoners. But where are the prisoners? They're not inside. The angel who let them out closed the door again. So these guards are oblivious. They're guarding nobody. They're guarding an empty cell. It's comedy gold. And the irony in this as well is that at the time, the Sanhedrin, this, this high-powered religious council, it was made up mostly of the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees, they were a party within the council with a couple of unique beliefs. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead and they didn't believe in angels. Isn't that fun? So when we're told that an angel of the Lord opened the doors, what are these Sadducees going to say? How are they going to explain this? Well, there's only one conclusion. God is at work here. But what God is doing through angels doesn't even fit with their worldview. They can't make sense of these events at all. Like it or not, God is making a clear statement here. The Sanhedrin might not want to know about it. They might not recognise it. But now God is at work in the preaching of the good news by these apostles. 
And God will not let the progress of the gospel be stopped. And he will not let it be silenced. And he will not let it be shut down through their imprisonment. He opens the doors and lets them out. Now, when we see what God does here, I think it can lead us to wonder why God doesn't do this every time his people are oppressed or suppressed. If God can open prison doors, if that's something he's able to do and that he does do for his people, then why doesn't he do that every time? Why didn't he get John the Baptist out of prison during Jesus' ministry? Why didn't, doesn't he get Peter or Paul out later in Acts when they're imprisoned? I wonder if they thought back to this story and wondered the same thing. And I think this becomes personal for us as well. Why are some people miraculously set free from all kinds of suffering while others continue to struggle with it? Why are some people relieved of their spiritual suffering, coming to faith in Jesus, while some others continue to be unresponsive to the gospel message, continuing to be trapped in sin? When we struggle to understand things like this, we need to return to and remember the character of the God who we trust in, the God who is at work here. We must remember what he's shown us about himself in Acts already. We must remember that our God is powerful. He can do anything he wants. Nothing is too hard for him. We must remember that our God is loving. He is the one behind the, behind the salvation, not just from prisons, but the salvation from sin that he offers in Jesus. He wants people to be saved and rescued and set free. And we must remember that God is wise. He sees the big picture and he is directing his purposes in a way that we don't always see. He's always at work bringing about his purposes in the world and in the lives of his people. And we need to hold these things together when we come to questions like this. Um, In our passage, God shows his power and his love and his wisdom to the apostles by breaking them out of prison. Um, From the passage, we see that it's not just for their enjoyment. It's not so they can skip the country and retire to a life of leisure. This isn't the Shawshank Redemption. They're set free so that the religious leaders can see God's work and so that we can see God's work. So we can see that even when the proclamation of the gospel is suppressed through imprisonment, God will not let it be stopped. And this leads us to our second point, that that God's work is seen as the disciples, as the apostles are recommissioned to proclaim the gospel. And we see this in verse 20. Um, The angel says to the freshly freed apostles, go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. This is their recommissioning. Uh, God opens the door metaphorically and physically for them to resume preaching the good news of the risen Jesus. And so they do. Verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. Now, if the religious rulers were jealous before they put the apostles in prison, can you imagine how they're feeling now? Imagine the looks on their faces as they round up the apostles after they've been set free, after they've found them preaching the gospel in the temple courts again in their temple courts. There would have been veins popping out everywhere. And it's no surprise to hear this this enraged statement from the high priest in verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, 
yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, did you notice that the high priest in this verse, he isn't even prepared to say the name Jesus. That's the sort of disdain we're dealing with here. And he suggests that this whole teaching campaign is just about smearing the religious establishment, holding them responsible for Jesus' death. Now, before we look at the, the apostles' response to this, uh, I don't want us to miss this gospel project, uh, progress update that's tucked away here um, in the high priest's words. Uh, remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a few weeks back now. Um, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what sets our, that's what we're watching as we're working our way through Acts. And here we are in the middle of these exasperated words of the high priest hearing that the teaching about Jesus has filled Jerusalem. Jerusalem, tick, good job. But after that glimpse of success, how how do the apostles respond to this accusation of, of the powerful high priest? How do they respond when they stand before people who had imprisoned them? Um, People who not long ago were involved in organising the death of Jesus in a setting like this. People who could organise the same fate for them if they wanted to. Well, in this situation, under this accusation, Peter and the apostles still know who they serve. They know who has commissioned them. They know whose work they're doing and they don't hold back. In verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. In other words, rather than you. And so what does obedience to God look like? Well, they've got to preach the gospel. Even in this setting, even with this audience, they don't pass up this opportunity to be obedient to God, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, even to this hostile audience. And they unpack this punchy gospel outline. There's three parts to it over four verses. If you're someone who takes notes or wants to revisit this later, copy these verses out. This is pretty good. Part one, verse 30. God raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. Now, why do the apostles say this? Well, because the religious leaders would know their Old Testament. They would know what Deuteronomy 21 says, that anyone who's hung on a tree or a pole or a cross is a person cursed by God. And that's what they wanted. That's why they wanted to have Jesus killed that way. But Jesus wasn't just cursed by God. That's not where the story ends. He took on the sins of the world in his death on the cross and was then honoured by God. After being in the tomb for three days, we know that he was vindicated and raised by God from the dead. The tomb was empty. There was nobody left there. And this was God's work. He appeared cursed by God and was then raised by God, vindicated by God. That's what the religious leaders need to know. And part two, verse 31, God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and saviour. Why do the apostles say this? Well, because Jesus wasn't raised just like Lazarus, only to die again. After 40 days, God raised Jesus, not just to life, but to his right hand, to his rightful place as God's chosen ruler, as the king of God's kingdom. Because God exalted him, all Israel, including these religious leaders, are called to respond rightly to him as king, as as prince and as saviour. 
They're called to repent. We are called to repent, to change our mind about Jesus as we see God's work in his life and death and resurrection and rule. And then part three, verse 32, God has given his spirit to those who obey him. Why do the apostles say this? Well, because everybody who turns and believes in the risen and exalted Jesus is given his spirit. And this is both shocking for the religious establishment and revolutionary for believers. Up until this point, you could say that God's Holy Spirit has been uh, rare and maybe a bit elusive. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit appeared and empowered particular people and particular events in the history of of God's people Israel. And, And prophets and priests and kings were usually the ones who were given God's Spirit, only often for a short time. But the apostles are saying that God's Holy Spirit is is a witness to the truth about Jesus alongside them, in them. And this is uh, an incredible encouragement to us, I think, as we seek to make Christ known. We're reminded here that um, because of the, the giving of God's Holy Spirit, God's Spirit in us, even when we're the only Christian around, we're not the only witnesses. God's Holy Spirit has witnessed the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and rule as well. And if you and I are are regular Christian believers who have obeyed God by responding to Jesus, then God's Holy Spirit has been given to us. God's Spirit is witnessing the truth about Jesus to us and through us, reminding us of the truth about Jesus, enabling us to speak the truth about Jesus to others. That's what the Spirit is doing in regular believers. And so this retelling of the gospel message shows how God has been working. Jesus' apostles, his chosen witnesses, have seen the truth about Jesus that God has made clear. They've been attentive to what God's doing. And they've obeyed God by responding rightly to the good news of Jesus. And they've been given God's spirit so they can proclaim the good news about Jesus. So now the centre of God's work is seen in them, seen in their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And the apostles have demonstrated that this is God's work by proclaiming it clearly and courageously, even before these religious heavyweights. And the implication from all this isn't a lightweight one for the religious leaders either. Uh, Peter and the apostles are saying that, that they, the apostles themselves, they know what God's doing and the religious leaders don't. They're out of the loop. Um, The apostles are witnesses to how God is working, but the religious leaders aren't. And the final straw is the implication that the apostles are obeying God and receiving God's spirit, but the religious leaders are disobeying God and therefore aren't receiving God's spirit. It's pretty heavy. Unsurprisingly, the strict lawmaking and law-keeping religious leaders don't take this charge of disobedience lying down. In verse 33, this is their response. When they, the Sanhedrin, heard this, they were furious and wanted to put the apostles to death. Which leads us to the final way that God shows his work uh, through gospel proclamation in this passage. Even though the religious leaders want them dead, the apostles' ministry is affirmed by God, confirmed by God. And it's affirmed from an unusual place. I don't know if you noticed. It's affirmed um, as a Pharisee called Gamaliel 
uh, stands up and persuades the council to let these guys off the hook. Uh, he, says to the, he says this in verse 38, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. It's true, isn't it? Now, Gamaliel seems very wise here, doesn't he? Um, he seems wise when he says that many human causes and efforts and enterprises die out. You know, that's true. Um, and he seems wise when he says that it would be hopeless to fight against God. And he seems wise when he persuades the Sanhedrin to spare the lives of the apostles with these words. Um, but I also don't think he's someone that we, we should get too excited about. Um, he appears wise, but he's also a little bit wishy-washy. Because as a Pharisee, Gamaliel wasn't in the same position as most of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't from the party of the Sadducees. He believed what the Old Testament said about the resurrection. Uh, he believed in angels. He believed that these were ways that God could work. And he too hears the apostles speaking the gospel, speaking about the way God has worked through Jesus. But he still isn't convinced that their ministry is from God. Gamaliel, Gamaliel thinks that Jesus and the apostles were just the same as those other revolutionaries, uh, Thutis and Judas. But there's no comparison. The evidence that God is at work here among these apostles is irrefutable. Now, the growth of the movement, movement that Jesus began has only grown beyond his death. And yet Gamaliel remains open to the possibility that this whole Jesus thing is just a human enterprise. I wonder, do you know people who think like that? But even in his uh, wise but wishy-washy appeal, Gamaliel does get something right, and it's an important thing for us to see. Remember, Gamaliel recognises that if the apostle's purpose or activity is just human, it will fail. But if this is God's work, it will be unstoppable. And while this sounds clear, I think it's something that we might be um, confused by as we come to the end of the passage, because this is what we read in verse 40. Um, his, that's Gamaliel's speech, persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, this doesn't sound like success, does it? Being flogged, uh, being stripped and whipped 39 times was the punishment given out to lawbreakers. And this is what the apostles received for their trouble. I think it comes as a little bit of a shock that this would happen. They've been imprisoned by the religious leaders. They've been released and recommissioned by God. And then this. Like, sure, it's better than dying, but flogging means failure, right? Amazingly for the apostles, they don't see it that way. Um, look at this in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Isn't this extraordinary? The apostles are flogged and they rejoice. Not because they're suckers for punishment. They respond this way because they know that Jesus has prepared them for exactly this kind of thing. Um, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said this to his apostles, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. Now, they might not have understood when Jesus said those words back in Luke, 
But you can imagine these words flooding back as the apostles experienced the events of this passage. Jesus prepared them for persecution like this. As they did what Jesus had told them to do, as they bore truthful testimony about him, they experienced what Jesus told them they would experience on account of his name. That's who they're suffering for. Now, there's something unique and specific about this for the apostles. Persecution isn't always success for us, especially if it comes apart from speaking about Jesus. And if we speak the truth about Jesus, our experience of persecution won't be the same as this, though it could be for some of our brothers and sisters proclaiming Jesus throughout the world. But what we see here helps us to adjust our expectations about what God's work looks like. Because the thing that we notice for the apostles is that they were speaking about Jesus before there was opposition. And they were speaking about Jesus during opposition. And then they continued speaking about Jesus after opposition, even while the wounds were still fresh, even while prohibition from the authorities was still in place. They kept doing it. And this is where we see God's work in their lives. This is where we see him affirming their ministry. Even after their flogging for speaking about Jesus, even after they're prohibited again from speaking in the name of Jesus, the apostles don't stop. In verse 42, we read this, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And this shows that what Gamaliel said was true. The proclamation of the gospel by the apostles wasn't just a human enterprise. Sharing and speaking and proclaiming and preaching the gospel was now the center of God's work. If you want to see God's work, this is where it's happening. Now, as we wrap up, I think this is uh, I think this and what we've seen in this passage can give us a great deal of confidence. It can give us confidence as we prayerfully and actively seek to make Christ known. And even as we prayerfully prepare to invite people to hear Adam next Sunday, this is helpful for us to hear. I know there are times when I find myself conflicted about speaking in any way, shape or form about Jesus. It's easier always to stay silent, isn't it? And at at those times when it's difficult, when I'm struggling to say anything, it does just feel like a human activity. Maybe you've had those times as well. But what I and what we can be encouraged by today is what this passage makes so clear, that God is at work in and through every aspect of his gospel going out. He's at work in and through every part of gospel, the gospel being received and proclaimed. He's at work opening doors for the gospel despite real opposition. Uh, He's at work in us by his spirit, witnessing with us and giving us everything we need to keep speaking about Jesus. He's doing that. And he's at work through us as we speak about Jesus, using us and our words and our witness to make known the truth about Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's where his work is seen. And so what an incredible gift it is to have received the glorious gospel message. And what a joy it is to be assured of God's work in us as we believe it. And what a privilege it is to be used by God in his unstoppable gospel work, work that continues to make Christ known here in Penrith 
and to the ends of the earth. It's a great thing. Um, We're going to uh, stand and we're going to uh, sing together our next song in response to what we've heard. Um, And our next song is called This Life I Live. So let's stand and let's sing together.